Okay, but do you want a groom's cake? Explain to me what a groom's cake is. So there's. I do want a cake. I love cake. Okay, yeah, no, we'll have a cake for sure. No, um, I just mean like like now. Oh, uh, so a groom's cake is traditionally um, one of two things. Uh, it's either like a fun treat that you send to the groom while they get ready. I've seen ones made of like beer. I've seen ones made of like oh, so it's not chips. a cake. It's just a treat. It's a treat. Yeah, it's um kind of like those diaper cakes that you make for like baby showers. Wait, diaper cake? I I have a lot of questions, <laughs> but I think we had to keep keep on with groom's okay. cake. What's the other type of groom's cake? Uh, the other type of groom's cake is a cake that's more like masculine and that's traditionally picked up by the groom. And then you cut it with the regular cake? Yeah. So there's two cakes. There's two cakes. Have you seen one of these at a wedding? Not in person, but I've seen it like on TV shows and like online. Because what it sounds like to me is um, it's either, oh, you poor little baby, you don't have enough trucks? Here, have a cake with trucks on it for you. It sounds either condescending or that the groom is so childish that they're like, everything has flowers. I want a cake with trucks on it. Yeah. And then they get their own cake. Yeah. I do not like that. It's basically what it is. That sounds terrible. I I don't want to offend if any of our listeners have had groom's cakes, but it sounds like to me is that uh, you're a child who couldn't get along with the rest of the wedding, so you needed a special (laughs) cake. You're like, this is too much girl shit. Yeah. (laughs) And just demanded something more masculine. I tend to hate anything that's unnecessarily gendered. Mm-hmm. Like one of my least favorite things is man cave. Mm-hmm. I know. Like, oh, I just need all my bro stuff down here. <laughs> I was like, first, if your stuff is so hideous that it can't <laughs> it be incorporated be into room. its own decor, yeah. there's some issues with that. And also, I don't like the idea that like, yeah, you have to have a space away from everyone because you're either too much of a child or you're just too much of a man that you just can't like be in the living room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then third, I hate the name. I yeah. think it's gross. I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, having an office and you go in there and you work and... And you, you know, do your hobby. Like, you have photos, so you have your computer all set up. And that's where you go to do, like, your hobby. But you don't decorate it in such a way that I would never, ever want to go in there. Yeah, and I don't give it an exclusive name. No. And, like, I have, like, my desk where I do my nails. And you're not going to go, like, sit at the nail desk. But it's, like, you can still enter the room. We have side-by-side desks. (laughs) Mine for photo and video editing. And Samantha's for nail doing. Doing my nails, yeah. Is there a word for nail doing? Manicuring? That is a word. Manicurism? Manicurism. And then I manicurize my hands. Oh, well, um, welcome. (laughs) This is uh, not a podcast about all of those things. My name is Indy Mancave Randall. And with me is Samantha, the manicurist. He's... It makes me sound like a murderer. The manicurist? (laughs) Yeah. No, it just makes it sound like you do nails. Cut people's fingers off. I'd rather be the manicurist than mancave. (laughs) I know you would. Welcome. This is an episode of I Love This, You Should Too. We're actually talking about movies, not all that other stuff. Oh, yeah. We should just get right into it because we kind of wasted a lot of time already. (laughs) 
Last week, I brought the movie Raging Bull to Samantha. I had only seen it when I was like 19, which was quite a while ago. For... It was a few years ago. And Samantha had never seen it, maybe had never even seen a Scorsese movie. And this was her first. I thought I loved it and that it was one of the best movies of all time. We'll see if that holds up. But first of all, Samantha, on your first watching, what are your f- initial thoughts on Raging Bull? It was okay. It was okay. That's it, it was huh? okay. Yeah. Not even good? Yeah, it was fine. Like, out of ten, it's like a six? Like a six or seven, yeah. Okay. Are you sad? I don't know about sad, but I think one of the hardest things to talk about is when people go like, yeah, it's pretty good. Because if you hated it, I could argue good points about <laughs> what makes it amazing. If you loved it, we could uh, go over all sorts of great things that you liked about it. But when it's like, that was pretty good. I just have a lot of questions. Yeah, let's set up what we're going to do here today, because I realized that this movie maybe needs some more explanation Mm -hmm. in a few different ways. Because first of all, to me and probably a lot of people who watch the types of movies that I watch, Martin Scorsese, you just say that name and you're like, oh yeah, I know everything about that. But many of our listeners don't, because we're trying to go about covering such a wide variety and saying like, no film is more important than others. And I think I didn't hold true to that because I was like, no, you all know De Niro and Scorsese, (laughs) which I should probably give a little explanation on. Um, Also, some of the boxing stuff Mm -hmm. maybe is not as obvious as I think it is because not a lot of people grew up with boxing anymore. That's where this movie kind of lost me uh, because I've never been into like martial arts or sports like that um, with a lot of like violence and hitting. Mm-hmm. And I just, um, I have a lot of questions in that vein, which I will ask you when we come to that part. But sure. I, uh, yeah, I feel like some of this just went over my head and I didn't find it as engaging as if I had a knowledge of some of these things. Okay. And then also after we get through these introductions of when this movie came out, I want to give a little backstory about how it came about, the mm-hmm. production of it, because usually I don't like to talk about that because I'm kind of of that the artist is dead way of thinking where... Why the artist made it isn't as important as how we take it. But there's mm-hmm. a fun story about this one. We'll talk about boxing rules a little bit. Perfect. Okay. And then we can get into analyzing it about how this movie, I think, falls into the trap of a lot of people might not want to see it because they're like, oh, this is just one of those super macho movies. And I would argue that this is the opposite. This is deconstructing those notions of masculinity and showing well, I guess in today's uh, vocabulary, showing the toxicity behind all of that. And I think it's a really great movie for exploring that, not promoting it. Hmm. But like if we ever do Fight Club, it's going to be the same thing. Half the people are watching and loving the movie for the wrong reasons and kind of missing the point of the movie. That this is a condemnation of toxic masculinity, not a promotion of it. Oh, Okay. So where shall we start? Do you want to start on um, who Martin Scorsese is? This will be real short. Yeah, who is Martin Scorsese? So to me, he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all times. And I think a lot of film critics would agree with that. He's made some movies like uh, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver was one of my favorite, that documentary, The Last Waltz, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, The Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, which we'll do at some point, the remake of Cape Fear, Casino, 
Gangs of New York, The Aviator, Shutter Island, because he went from working with De Niro almost exclusively to now working with DiCaprio almost exclusively. Huh. Uh, he's been nominated for I don't know how many Oscars. I'm going to guess 12. I'm sure by the end of this speech, Samantha will tell me the real answer. And he's been nominated for uh, for Best Director as recently as last year with The Irishman. Wow, okay. So he's been working consistently and doing consistently good work, in my opinion, and well-regarded work for since the early 70s, late 60s. So he's very established, I guess. And at the time when this came out, he was close to the top of his game. He was being regarded as one of this new generation of filmmaker, along with guys who are very different, like uh, George Lucas or Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, because they were the first generation of film school students. Like, they grew up watching movies and then turned into filmmakers, while mm -hmm. if you're making movies in the 40s, you probably didn't grow up watching them so much, right? Because there wasn't a huge uh, right. cinema. So this new school of film school people was really revolutionizing Hollywood, and there was a lot of pressure on... Scorsese for whatever his next film was going to be. Uh, similarly, Robert De Niro had just come off of Godfather Part Two, where he received a Best Supporting Actor Oscar, I think. All of this is off the top of my head, so I might be <laughs> wrong, but it was good either way. He was also in Deer Hunter just a year or two before, which was a Best Picture winner, so he's at the top of his game as well. So the two of these people are real heavyweights for film, but I would like to stress a little bit that it's less of um, like similar people we would have now. Like some of the biggest box office draws are like The Rock. Mm -hmm. I love him, actually. I think he's very good. But I don't think we think of him as one of the best actors of all time. No. He's a star for sure. Oh, for sure. And he's very fun to watch. And he, he does a lot of really cool things. He's really charismatic. Yeah. And he doesn't take himself too seriously. Yeah. But he's definitely not like a... Like a Scorsese level actor. Yeah. And so at this time, we had less of that being a star without being a great actor as well. Although I'm sure there's actors out there where you're like, well, what about him? But he I'm was. I'm sure everybody has an opinion too. Like, this person is the best actor. Yeah. Because everybody is subjective. Well, whatever you think, I think the majority of film critics were really into both of these guys mm -hmm. and they were at the, their height of their career. So then when this movie comes about, Scorsese is having a, a lot of trouble with dealing with this pressure. He keeps being called like the next big thing, and he's handling this with a lot of drugs. So at one point, De Niro has read Jake LaMotta's book, Raging Bull, and says, like, we should make this a movie. And Scorsese says, no, I don't do sports movies. I don't find it interesting. Who is this character? It doesn't even matter. And he just turns him down then scorsese ends up in the hospital overdosing on cocaine he's down to under 110 pounds by this point isn't he really short too he's a smaller, he guy. smaller guy okay yeah i'm just trying to get the picture in my head but 110 pounds That's is very small on anybody yeah unless you're like 411 <laughs> maybe um so he's he's not doing well he nearly dies he's in the hospital and de niro comes back and says like we sh we can do something with this and now Scorsese looks at it differently than he had before. He realizes that this won't be a 
sports movie. Mm-hmm. Because in this movie, there's actually 10 minutes of boxing in this two-hour, 10-minute movie. Oh, see, it seems like there was more. It does. Yeah, But it's, it's spread very out. small and usually just for a minute or two at a time. Right. It's, it's not Rocky. Rocky has already come out by this point, and I think he's probably quite aware of that. And either consciously or subconsciously is trying to distance himself from that kind of thing. Mm. So they take a very different approach. And I think this is just psychoanalytic indie now. I think Scorsese is trying to work through some of his own stuff in this movie. Mm -hmm. Because Jake LaMotta is a character who feels a lot of pressure to be the best. Mm -hmm. And he's failing. And it's his own fault that he's failing. Right. Scorsese at this time also feels a lot of pressure to be the best and he gets really caught up in drugs and he's squandering what a lot of people think is an immense talent. Mm -hmm. So he agrees to do this movie with extensive rewrites of what the book actually is. And at the time, he thinks this is his last movie. Oh, so he thinks he's like done done. He said that I'm going to do this one last movie and then I'm going to move to Europe and I'm just going to make small documentaries but because I, I can't deal with all of this stuff here. So the great thing about that is he's just absolutely uncompromising in this. He wants something and if the studio doesn't like it, it's too bad. He's doing things his way and he's not willing to compromise on his vision. So because of that, I think we get a really unique film out of that. <laughs> because this movie is is different. It's odd in a lot of ways. And then there's some fun things about how the supporting cast got on it as well. So Kathy Moriarty, who plays his wife, mm-hmm. Vicky, I think? I think, yeah, Vicky. She had never been in any movie. De Niro just saw a picture of her because she was kind of, uh, I don't know about famous, but like well-known in the like disco club scene at the time. Oh. So he saw a picture of her and said, we should get her. She looks just like the real Vicky. And the fact that she could act is just kind of icing on the cake, because I think she really holds her own in this movie. And Joe Pesci, who now we have an idea of Joe Pesci, or at least people who watch a lot of Scorsese movies like I do have this idea of Joe Pesci. Are you familiar with him at all? Not really. I know the name. Okay. I don't think I can like name a whole bunch of movies that he's famous for. Okay. So he's in a lot of the Scorsese De Niro movies. Right. He's often playing De Niro's friend not quite sidekick but they're often together right and this establishes that joe pesci was actually a childhood actor and had retired and at this time was working in an italian restaurant oh so he'd given up on acting which he will do again later many years and sorsese brings him back both times (laughs) so this time de niro saw him being a thug in some movie and said we should get this guy And they had to kind of convince him to come out of retirement to be in this movie. And good thing they did, because this really launched his career. Although he had some success as a child actor, he now becomes known as Joe Pesci under this kind of caricature almost he's doing. I feel like this is a little bit more toned down, but he plays almost an identical character in most of the things he is in, (laughs) including uh, Goodfellas and Casino, both again with De Niro. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the more nuanced ones, and I think he doesn't get enough credit because when you play a very similar character a lot, people are just like, oh, that's just him. He's just Mm -hmm. doing the same thing. Yeah. But I think there is a lot of subtlety into his performance in this, which we'll talk about as well. 
And then De Niro, who we'll really get into, does a lot of interesting stuff and gets really method with this performance. And he was more of the driving force behind the creation of this movie rather than Scorsese. It was more De Niro's passion project than Scorsese's. Initially, Jake LaMotta heard that this movie's being made, of course, because it's his book, Mm -hmm. and he starts campaigning that he wants to play himself. And Scorsese just couldn't convince him that, like, no, no way. (laughs) Is that ever a good idea? So he got De Niro to go, like, work with Jake LaMotta. And LaMotta felt that he was being heard. And, like, you kind of have a man who's regarded as the best actor in the world at the time playing you. So you're doing pretty well. Yeah, you're, like, pretty happy with that. Yeah. All right. So that kind of sets up Raging Bull coming out in 1980. But you had some questions about the boxing world. Yes. So maybe we should go over those because I would argue that I think it doesn't take away much if you don't understand the boxing stuff because it's not a boxing movie as much as it is a kind of a character piece about Jake LaMotta. Right. But But the boxing is kind of a driving force behind a lot of it. It is a parallel story to his own life and they kind of parallel his struggles a lot through the fighting. So... It's probably helpful to know, but you tell me. Did you feel lost not knowing some of the boxing stuff? Yes, I definitely felt lost not knowing the boxing stuff. I never knew who had won or when it was over. Okay. So, like, is there there, – I know there's rounds. Yes. How many rounds are there? Depending. Okay. Uh, 15, 12, if you're amateur or less. But boxing is very strange because, or you might appreciate this, before the last five years, there wasn't really unified cheerleading rules, correct? No. Every kind of organization had its own rules. <laughs> you could do things in one state. You can't do them in another. And scoring systems are different yes, all over the place. Yeah. Boxing is very much the same. Okay. So at the time, most of these fights are either 12 or 15, depending on where they are. And the scoring system at this time is round by round. Okay. So if you win a round, you get the point for that round. Okay. So So you just want to win the most rounds. Yeah. Okay. So even though at the end of one of the fights, LaMotta is just like just crushing a guy, that guy had won more rounds, so So he he still wins the fight because it's based on that. Right. Now they used more of what a... It's called a 10-point must system, which we don't need to get into. And never mind, I won't even tell you about it because it's not in this movie. It's changed. Got it. (laughs) Um, It often looks like to someone who's outside, you're like, well, that guy won. He beat him up at the end. Mm -hmm. He's the winner. But if you didn't actually win more rounds, even if you just marginally win more rounds and then get crushed at the end, you could still win on the scorecard. Got it. But you can also be knocked down before that Mm -hmm. or knocked out. Okay, so if I, I knew that from, I think, video games or something, mm-hmm. where it's like knockout and then you win. Yeah, if you knock someone out, that could be either you hit them, they fall down, they can't get up within the 10 seconds. Or there's technical knockouts, which those rules are different in different places. Like uh, some have a three knockdown rule. If you get If you go down three times in one round, the fight's over. Okay, that was my other question. That is not at this time, I think, for most of it. Okay. But they do have rules where the referee can stop the fight. Oh. So if they're just like, this guy is getting crushed, I'm worried about his health, we're stopping the fight, technical knockout. Got it. Okay. Technical. That was one that they said. Yes. In the movie. And I I was wondering about that. Um, What was my other question? Oh, 
So is there like a governing body of boxing? There are. There are more than one, though. So that's what gets tricky. Right. So that's why there's often multiple belts. Right. In one weight class. So and they also have sometimes different rules or someone can just not be allowed to fight under one or the other. Oh. Because maybe they had something. Oh, like in this case, uh, LaMotta throws a fight. So he's banned from that mm-hmm. that organization, whether it be WBA or whoever it is. Okay. And then how do you win a belt? Is it just like whoever they want in the fight? Or do you have to like win a pre-qualifier or like a semifinal? Or is there like, is it like hockey where you have to like work your way through the grid? That is actually important to this movie because it's it's crooked. Right. That's it kind of seemed arbitrary. It is. Uh, that's So like in our modern times, Floyd Mayweather finally fought Manny Pacquiao. And mm-hmm. they were supposed to be like the two best. But Mayweather just re- kept refusing to fight him for like 10 plus years. And then didn't fight him until he was an old man. And then he's like, look, I won. Guess I'm the best of all time. But he was ducking him that whole time. There aren't always rules that say you have to fight somebody. Okay. So the reason people will take a fight is for the money. Mm -hmm. So in this movie, organized crime is involved a lot, which is the case with actual boxing. I'm sure it's much less now, but this is all through the 50s. And it was present like for a long time. Even through the 80s and 90s, if it wasn't mob controlled, you still had a lot of crooked and shady fight promoters. Right. So LaMotta refused to join in with any of these mob figures because he said, I want to do it by myself. I want to do everything and win on my own accord, not because somebody got me this fight. Mm -hmm. But nobody will agree to fight him. So that's the point where he fights that kid who's uh, like the handsome one. Right. How he goes to a different weight category because nobody would fight him in his own category. Right. And you need someone who is connected, who is going to make those deals for you, which is shady. Yes. That's super shady. Yeah. And that's why those mob guys are in this movie is because they say like, okay, do one thing for us, Mm -hmm. throw this one fight, and then we're going to make sure you get your title fight later. Right. And that's what happens to, uh, to Jake LaMotta. He throws that fight, but in doing so, he actually sets him up himself up for that title fight later in the movie. Got it. And that's like the one point where he actually has regret because he doesn't want to doesn't want to throw the fight. Hmm. Uh, so that all sounds extra shady <laughs> and not like an actual organized sport. But I would argue that most sports are like this much less now. And I think like we're most familiar with hockey. There's mm-hmm. less of that in hockey. But if you look at college basketball and football, those kinds of things are going on today. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of people who try to make money off of it. And the way to do this is to get close to a player, a fighter, get on their side, get them to do things for you. And then they're indebted to you as they become more successful. That happens all the time, whether it's with the deals Cuban players make to get over here to play baseball, then they're indebted to the person who brings them over. Mm. Same with Russians in hockey. There's a lot of stuff going on with that right now. Or college basketball players, because they are bringing in millions of dollars for people, but they are not allowed to profit on it themselves. yeah. So there's roundabout ways people do it, like sign with my agency now, we're going to set your family up with a nice car and a home, 
and then those things get found out and it's a big scandal. But things like this happen a lot. Oh, okay. I guess I don't follow enough different sports to kind of realize. Because, yeah, like you said, it's mostly hockey. So um, I definitely don't know enough about a lot of those sports to, like, really be able to recognize what's kind of shady. But I did know that about, um, like, college basketball Mm -hmm. and football. I know that these kids, they find them in, like, super poor areas and promise them, like, absolutely everything. And then they end up, like, losing their scholarships if they get, uh, like, injured. And then it, like, ruins their lives. Or if they get found out doing this because it's illegal. NCAA is making some rule changes, but I could have a whole podcast on <laughs> on the NCAA and why it's actually detrimental to these players that they say like, oh, we're just giving them free education. But it's that's it goes a lot further than that. But that's for a different podcast because I <laughs> really have thoughts on that. That's corruption time with Indy. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Raging Bull. Yeah. So let's uh, get into some of your feelings on this movie. What did you like? What didn't you like? Um, I liked Vicky. She was kind of fun to watch because she was more of a stronger character than I was expecting to see in a woman in this kind of um, situation. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about her because Mm -hmm. I think we probably won't spend as much time because she's not the main character in this. But when you are someone who's 19, Mm -hmm. as she was when filming this, have never been in a big movie, and then you're uh, doing scenes with De Niro, who's going straight method with everything. Yeah. That must be incredibly intimidating, but you do not see that in her performance. I wonder if, because she was so, like, green and new, that she just kind of, like, did whatever she felt was right in the moment, and she didn't have, like, because, like, a lot of actors have, like, acting school and like ways of doing things and producing tears or like how you summon up this emotion and I think she was just being honest. Yeah, she was so raw that I think it suits this movie very well. Mm -hmm. If she had been into something else that's more uh, performative, something less grounded in reality, she might not look good and she might look kind of wooden. Mm -hmm. But in a movie that's so, so realist, I think her performance was was great for it. Mm Mm-hmm. I think one of the really nuanced things she does that maybe gets overlooked is to be somebody who is a victim of abuse, but not to play it as just beaten down. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like there's always a a strength or a resilience or at least a defiance in her, despite this like very hard life she must be leading. Yes. I did like that about her. And that's what I kind of mean when I say I was like really surprised and happy that she was more of a stronger character than I would expect um because yeah she is trying to stand up at every every instance that she can and she's really kind of putting herself and the kids first while still trying to be like a supportive spouse yeah because I think she does love Jake I think so I don't think it's just for the um, the show or the money or whatever she thinks she might gain from that relationship. Mm-hmm. I think she has a lot of affection towards him. It cares about his future far more clearly than he does about her. But she has to be torn, right? Because she has this allegiance to him, but he's the worst thing in her life. Yeah. He's just a, a terrible, terrible man. Yeah. And when she finally does have that resolved time it's not how we might see it in other movies where 
he's beating her and she goes, that's it. This is the last straw. And she makes a big impassioned speech because that's not what this movie is. It's mm-hmm. not about glamorizing either side of it. No. It's about it looking terrible. Like domestic abuse is terrible. It it's is. not, I have a lot of issue when it's often used as a growing mm-hmm. moment for female characters in books and movies. Like women can grow without being beaten up. Yes. Right? And this movie, the way she goes about uh, coming to that conclusion, it's so resolute. Mm -hmm. She said, oh, no, I've already done all this. I've made all the arrangements. It's taking place today. Goodbye. Yeah. And I loved that because that's who her character has been. She's been practical, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think she learns how to kind of self-preserve and how to kind of persevere in this environment like she keeps herself pretty safe most of the time and uh, I think she knows how far she can go with like talking back and pushing Jake and I think that that is really interesting to watch because I think that's something um, that a lot of people who go through that kind of domestic abuse kind of have to learn You see her, like, being as strong as she can be and then keeping the rest of the strength for, like, the kids and making an exit plan. Yeah, she's almost, um, like, cunning in it, right? Yeah, so I I really enjoyed watching her because um, she grows up really quickly in this movie and also is very, very good at... um, kind of calming Jake down and keeping things kind of even and safe for everybody. But also um, she like acknowledges and understands that she's going to need to leave at some point. And she also does something else in this movie that is very difficult. She plays the same character over the period of many years, but from a teenager to an adult to when she's divorced later in it, her performances are rooted in the same things, but have enough variance to show her growing up. Mm-hmm. But it's not like a completely different character. It seems like a, a true-to-life performance of someone going through all of these things. Mm-hmm. She's still the same person at heart, but she has she has grown. And the subtle ways she does that in her performance, I think, are, are underrated. Or maybe not underrated, because she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, I think. Okay, yeah. Deserving so. For sure. She's uh, she's definitely just as strong an actor as all these like big Hollywood guys that she's kind of playing against. Yeah. Or with. Yeah, she holds her own. She does. And it's um, really nice to see. And I think that is like the best way to phrase it because you hear that with any young person coming to work with big names like mm-hmm. this. But her character has to do the same too. Her character has to walk a fine line of asserting herself but realizing that if she goes too far it's going to be taken as an attack on his fragile masculinity yes so she has to just hold her own she Mm -hmm. can't take those extra steps to be a dominant force but she knows that if she's too demure she'll just be uh, like wiped out by this by by the raging bull right so she has a a very fine line to walk, both the character in her relationship with Lamada and Moriarty in her performance. And I think it's mm-hmm. it's well done. It's so well done. I really I really enjoyed her in this movie. Should we go on to Joe Pesci? Sure. Who plays Joey, Jake's brother. 
in the original scripts, there was no brother character. Oh. The brother existed, but he's not really in the book. The book also is not good from what I hear because it's <laughs> written by Jake LaMotta right. with some ghostwriters and stuff. Okay. Then they got a script made and Scorsese was lukewarm on it. And then Paul Schrader comes in and Paul Schrader is one of the best screenwriters of all time in my opinion he wrote taxi driver amongst others and that's where this brother character comes in and that relationship is maybe even more than the husband and wife relationship might be the driving force of this movie Hmm. is joey and jake oh wow okay um i or did you think so um i was thinking uh that it was jake and um Vicky. I was mm-hmm. thinking it was Jake and Vicky. And then um, I liked Joey in this role because it allowed the families to kind of have this little kind of subplot that wasn't just boxing. Yes. Or their bad marriage. Um, I liked that Vicky and Joey's wife had like a friendship and they were raising their babies together. And I liked um, that they were always over at each other's houses. You get to see this kind of like normalcy amongst this kind of extraordinary sports life that Jake's living. Yeah, and it's funny that I'm glad that it stands out to you Mm -hmm. because I think there's actually more time of that on screen than there is boxing time. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it because the boxing is uh, bigger than life. It's kind of of all-consuming in his life, too. So you get to really see, like, when he was trying to um, get down to weight to fight uh, the, like, good-looking kid. Mm -hmm. And um, when he's trying to just get back into shape for a fight and uh, he... You can see just how consuming this sport is. And um, from like coming from a sports background, both of us, you can kind of understand when you're playing super competitively, it's kind of always there in your life. Mm-hmm. You're living a certain way. You're trying to be careful so you don't get hurt. You're fueling your body so that you can be an elite athlete. So it's really interesting to watch that for, for like a different sport because I definitely related with a lot of the things that he was doing. Yeah. And Maybe thank not you for like... considering me a sports background. You consider what I do a sports background. <laughs> well, you played hockey pretty competitively. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not like going pro or anything. No, no, no. But I like I'm not going pro, but I consider myself an elite athlete. So I think watching him be an elite athlete and to really see how much of his life he devotes to it, it was nice to see that he still had a little bit of normalcy with, you know, going over to his brother's and his brother's wife's house with the kids and having those little moments. What about Joe Pesci? Joe Pesci. I I liked him. I liked that um, they had a, like a kind of a nice dynamic as, like, brothers. You can tell that... Uh, Joey is used to uh, being kind of in Jake's shadow, but he's figured out kind of his role is to be supportive and to, like, keep Jake under control. And um, so he's he's really learned how to do this, and he's learned really well how to do it. I guess it kind of mirrors Vicky as well. Mm-hmm. They both know where they can kind of fit in in his Mm -hmm. life without being steamrolled. He knows that I can do this management side because, like, Jake's not smart enough to do it, frankly, Mm -hmm. right? And he knows if he sticks to that, he's not kind of getting in Jake's ways, less likely to have to deal with the Mm -hmm. violence. Of course, it does come to him at points throughout the movie. But he's... Everyone in this movie seems like they are just 
tiptoeing around Jake, trying to do the best they can in their relationship with mm-hmm. him without being like destroyed. Yes, exactly. And you can tell that Joey is very good at making Jake feel like the star. Yes. Whereas Joey's really behind the scenes and he's really good at being his manager. Mm-hmm. And like you said, like knowing exactly where he fits in and how to like stay out of the danger zone. So Joe Pesci turns into almost a caricature of himself throughout the years, as does so many of these great actors. De Niro, De Niro, Pacino. Yeah. They <laughs> when you get to the nineties, it's it's rough for a lot of a lot of their work. And this is what establishes Pesci. Although he had some success in the past mm-hmm. in television and stuff, this is like the big breakout. And he would go on to play this role in varying degrees through a lot of his career, like in Goodfellows, Casino, Irishman. He was actually retired again recently, but <laughs> uh, Scorsese brought him back for the Irishman because he's getting the whole crew back together. He'd been working with DiCaprio and those guys for a long time, but now brings in De Niro again. And then, of course, if you have De Niro, you have to bring Pesci back of too, course, right? Yeah. Even the though they're together. both so old, they de-aged <laughs> them digitally because they're like, this is what we're doing. We're going with the gang. Yeah, Joe Pesci's 78 years old. <laughs> Yeah. That's amazing that he's still like going and doing acting. Going and doing acting. That was a very good sentence. (laughs) De Niro and Scorsese are probably similar ages as well. I think they're both born in the early 40s. Yeah. uh, De Niro's 77 and Scorsese. I think he's about the same age because they were all coming up together. Yeah. 78. So yeah, they're all within a year of each other. I hope that I'm still doing something that I love when I'm that old. Oh, and we'll get back to Pesci in just a moment, but I was reminded about uh, Thelma Schoonmaker because I said, oh, what's the editor's name? I forgot it now. That's her name. She edited this. Uh, She had worked with Scorsese in film school, actually, so many years before this Mm -hmm. in the probably the 50s. Wow. And she was a very talented editor and had been working quite a bit, but was denied entrance into the editing guild or union or whatever it is so she couldn't do these big hollywood movies so she hadn't been able to work with scorsese since even though they were great friends for a long time so whether it is because she was at a higher level and didn't do the apprenticeship stuff or as many people would argue because she was a woman she was not uh admitted into that union so at this point though scorsese was just like no, this is my last movie. I need her. Like, they were great friends and had mm. been working together for so long. So he went out and, like, forced her into the union. She got into the union. Of course, this was not his last movie. And she has worked on every movie of his since, I believe. Wow. Or the vast majority of them. And I'm not sure if she was the first female to ever win Best Editing Oscar, but I would assume, because I don't know of any others. But either way, just a little... Uh, Credit where credit is due that Thelma Schoonmaker did amazing work. And uh, you can really see her influence on this movie because the editing I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I uh, it was a definitely an enjoyable movie to watch. So back to Pesci. I just wanted to bring up one scene that I loved. So there's this sequence where Vicky goes to the club without Jake and... Pesci's character is like, no, you got to get out of here because he knows the violence that Jake is capable of, right? So he's trying to get her out of there and he ends up 
smashing the glass in that guy's face. Yeah. And then runs out the door, waits at the door. So when the guy comes out the door, he picks up one of those like stanchions from the velvet rope. Yeah. And just smashes him over the head, proceeds to put him in a car door and slam the door on his head. This is kind of the prototype of all the Pesci characters we're going to see later. (gasps) That he is this small guy who is willing to take offense to something and just snap. It's done very well in Goodfellas. Like, oh my god, I'm very excited for when we eventually watch Goodfellas. He plays that role so well. And I feel like in this one, it's more nuanced because he's not doing that so often. And Mm -hmm. when he does it in this, it is shocking. Do you remember that scene I'm talking about? Yes. And it was definitely like, shocking is probably the right word. It was definitely shocking to watch him uh, just keep going. Because I thought like, oh, he's just going to hit him over the head and the guy's going to pass out and then he's going to get away and it's going to be like, that's the end of the scene. But it just kept going. And it was like, you see this rage and how it kind of like runs through the family almost, right? Like, because it's similar rage that you see. Um jake doing in the ring where he's just like pummeling someone and doesn't stop and that's the thing that he's most known for is he's relentless Mm -hmm. jake lamada skilled or tough or whatever all of that is secondary the first thing is that he doesn't stop yeah and i feel like so much of the direction mirrors that or highlights that that this movie is not about any sort of glory that comes from violence Mm -hmm. that you might see in other movies especially other boxing movies, this is about the brutality of of it. And I think that if you look at this movie and you're expecting something like Rocky, you're expecting this triumphant moment, you're not going to get it here. And I think that's kind of the heart of what Scorsese's doing and the strength of what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it's kind of neat to see um, the other brother having the same kind of like rage attack. <laughs> that, yeah, the moment that Jake's not around, yeah, he's like, he's oh, like, now I can dominate he's like, things. Snaps. Yeah. And he doesn't he slap Vicky at one point in the club? Maybe. I'm not sure about that, but it seems like it would I be in his. Because I think she grabs her purse and walks out after he does right, that. Right. And um, I think that. Yeah, he kind of loses himself after hitting her and mm. and then just, like, can't get it back. That, like, calm demeanor that he usually has to have around Jake. Right. And this is kind of what leads to his falling out with his brother later <laughs> on, too. Like, I definitely don't want to uh, condone anything no, that Pesci's no, character is doing. No, we're not condoning violence. But I think <laughs> what, in his mind, he might be doing this for the greater good. Yes. Because I do think that... Everyone's pretty bad in this Mm -hmm. movie. I think Joey is less bad than Mm -hmm. Jake. Still not a good guy, but definitely not on Jake's level. So I think he believes that if he does this to that guy, he's saving Vicky something from Jake. Because if Jake finds out about this, she's going to be the one that gets beaten. Exactly. Yeah. And so so he's trying to save her. I think in some way he is, In his own way. Yeah. Yeah. And then also he's probably going to have to deal with Jake's rage as well because he's... Yeah. Well, he does. Yeah. So he uh, he's in his own way trying to help both of them. Well, the movie is driven by Robert De Niro more mm-hmm. than anyone. What did you think of his performance? Um, there were times when I was able to forget the Robert De Niro that I know today. Well, actually, I want to ask about that first yeah. because I started watching De Niro movies at a very young age, mm-hmm. before before the fall, I right. like to call it. Before he was known for like 
meet the Falkers. Okay, and so stuff I think like that's that. probably one of the first movies that I know him from. And I I understand that, and that has no nothing bad to say about you, but you don't realize how sad that makes me. <laughs> No, it makes me kind of sad, too, because I didn't ever kind of connect him with being that kind of star, right? right. Like, before Meet the Fockers, um, I think that he – I really enjoyed him in that movie because he, he does such a good, mean dad in that movie. And I think he's, like, very, very funny. But um, I didn't know that he had done other stuff like this, I think. The Robert De Niro in my brain is a funny dad. Are you sad? Are you going to cry? No, I just... N- no. <laughs> this this is why this podcast is important. Because we're bringing together so many different mm-hmm. uh, schools of thought. Yes. And I think there's probably a lot of listeners, because even people who are my age, when I was alive, a lot of his movies were bad. Mm-hmm. I had to go to before my time to, right. really, to really see the great stuff. And... Uh, I'm excited to bring more of it to you. Yeah, and I like movies like this. Even if I didn't love this movie, even if it wasn't, like, my favorite movie that we've watched, I I enjoy movies like this because I feel like it's teaching me about some of these actors that, like, I've always known existed. Like, I've always known that Robert De Niro has been an actor forever. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that he did other stuff. Right. And it's funny because I always argue, like, oh, this is the one that sets him up for this caricature of the way he talks in this movie. Mm-hmm. When I do an impression, it's all of this New York constant yelling with a slight Italian accent and some Italian words coming through. Yeah. And that is, it's almost, it's a joke at this point, right? It is, yeah. It's a caricature of an, uh, an Italian-American person. And we forget that De Niro, Scorsese, Pesci, even uh, Kathy Moriarty, they all lived in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. They're all from there. And this is incredibly authentic, even though now it kind of seems like a joke, mm-hmm. right? So this is kind of what sets up so much of that. Like, you could argue that like Mean Streets and that did it earlier, but nothing to this success, this... um vocabulary the sound of little italy these constant yells coming from the balcony above this creates scorsese's new york in so many ways and that is a an image that would continue on for for 20 years before de niro then gets old and does his first comedy and people are like oh he's gonna be like a funny angry grandpa now yeah and that was like his his rebirth and my thinking was like oh people just think of him as this like a mobster type guy they see in Goodfellas and they don't realize like all the range he has mm-hmm. because we, for some reason, mob characters, especially like people watch the Sopranos and you're like, Oh, those guys are like tough guys. And we think of the actors like that. And you don't realize like this could study Shakespeare. Like yeah. he's not, he's a classically he's trained actor. Guy, yeah. Right. And I, I love seeing the range of De Niro. And this used to be a movie I'd consider that was like in that wheelhouse of what he does. But now he's gone so uh, so different in the in the modern world that this demonstrates his range while this used to be like the stereotype of him. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed seeing him in a new light, even though it's kind of an old light. Yeah. Um, and I 
was able to kind of disconnect my knowledge of Robert De Niro that I've always kind of had from this Robert De Niro that was playing Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull. And it was really cool to see him do something different. It was really cool to get to see him do something more complex than like Meet the Parents and some of these movies that he's done where he's just kind of a grumpy old man. Um, and it was cool to see him really kind of method in a character that looks like it actually takes some work to play. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, method acting. So for those of you who aren't aware, the the really dumbed down version of method acting or the Stanislavski approach is that these characters, these actors, try to make their lives as similar to the character they are portraying. Mm -hmm. Whether it means Daniel Day-Lewis is going to build a log cabin and live in there to prepare for the crucible, or De Niro is going to actually become a taxi driver as he did for Taxi Driver, right. or a boxer as he did for this. So he trained extensively. Lamada himself said, after the movie, let's go. I'm going to train you. You could be a contender. You could win a middleweight, middleweight fight, a title. And De Niro did fight three times. Oh, uh, he has a like record. for real? Yeah, he has a record of two and one. So he won two, lost one. Pretty good. That's amazing. Yeah. And like, why not if you're in peak physical shape like that? Mm -hmm. Like, why wouldn't you try and see just like if you could actually hold your own? And speaking of physical shape, he then went on to take a six-month break from filming and gained 60 pounds in six months, or maybe even less time. It might have been four months. Either way, he gained a very unhealthy amount of weight. This is one of the first times this has been done for a film and comes back to play older Jake LaMotta with all of that weight. And it's a little different when somebody who is in very good shape gains it quickly. It kind of fits him differently it than other people. Weird. Yeah. yeah. It looks odd because someone who's naturally gained that weight, it, I don't know, it seems more balanced. Yeah. With him, it looks it looks unhealthy. It does. And it was. Yeah. So Scorsese usually takes like 10 or 12 takes of every scene. Uh, after this, they were just doing two or three because they were so concerned for De Niro's health. I mean, he could have, he looked like he was 10 seconds away from a heart attack. Yes, he was having uh, severe heart palpitations, <gasps> oh my a God. lot of trouble breathing. So they had to rework that whole section. Uh, there was going to be more of it. It was going to take longer, but they were just like, we, we can't, he, he's going to die. So they did it much more quickly than they needed, than they planned on doing it. But the effect is still there because mm -hmm. uh, he looks like a different man at the end of the movie. Yeah. That's, yeah, and I I like that version of kind of method acting. Not when it endangers your health, but it reminds me kind of of, like, when Matthew McConaughey played an AIDS patient, and he got, like, so skinny. Christian Bale in The Machinist was, yeah, like, a very yeah. severe one. And you see these, like, actors just go, like, totally unhealthy looking, and you realize it's, like, for a role, and... And then they are healthy again. I have mixed feelings. Like when I first saw this or when I first heard of actors doing that, I was like, wow, that's amazing. What dedication. That's great. Or like when we're talking about Kubrick or Friedkin, like those directors who would actually terrify their actors to get the right performance. Right. I used to be of the mindset of like, 
that's great. Look at all this stuff they're doing in the sake of art. And now I'm like, he's kind of being a dick to people, though. Mm -hmm. The thing about being a method actor is like, it's great for you, but poor Kathy Moriarty has to actually work with De Niro, who's always in character, who's always like right about to snap. And chances are was probably too violent in a lot of it because he's really doing a lot he's of feeling this it stuff. yeah and we'll get remind me about the really doing stuff in a moment because we'll get into that but i wonder about actors like this now like i appreciate the dedication but i also feel like maybe it's bordering on self-indulgence i don't know i'm very conflicted about it i know there's a story about uh dustin hoffman working on must have been marathon man with Laurence olivier and Hoffman was also a method actor and was saying how to be tired in this movie, he was like staying up all night or sleeping in bushes or whatever it was. And Laurence Olivier says like, my dear boy, why don't you try acting? <laughs> and I was like, you know, like, right? You are actors. Yeah. Do you need to actually gain the weight? But maybe it, it informs your performance more, but also like you're an actor. Just just pretend. Yeah, yeah, that's literally your job. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing I was going to mention is, do you know, relatively early on in the movie, we have the scene of um, Jake LaMotta telling his brother, like, hit me. Do you remember that? Where Pesci puts the towel on his hand and then is yeah. hitting him? And I said, oh, remember this scene. To get that, De Niro just made Pesci hit him. What? He's just punching him in the face. What? Yeah. When I was younger, I was like, that's amazing. I love it. And now I'm like, that's not healthy. No, Maybe that's not. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. I don't know. I have, I have mixed feelings on it. But either way, I think it's an amazing performance. I'm not sure. Maybe my favorite of De Niro's. Or maybe not my favorite, but maybe his best. I, of course, put Taxi Driver as my favorite Scorsese movie mm -hmm. and De Niro movie. But I wonder if his performance in this might be better. I don't have enough knowledge to have an opinion on that, but I can Not yet. see in the future me having that knowledge. <laughs> um, so I think watching Robert De Niro do this gave me kind of a new, more complex appreciation for what he does as an actor. Yeah, and hopefully we'll watch some more of his stuff in a little while. Oh, I know we will. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's bring up another thing that I used to talk about all the time on this mm -hmm. podcast, but haven't so much lately. The 70s. <laughs> you know how I love films of the 70s. If you're for some reason just tuning into this episode, Andy loves the 70s. Andy loves film from the 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has talked about it quite often. American cinema of the 70s is probably my favorite single uh, little section of film history. And this movie, although released in 1980, kind of seems like the end of the 70s. Mm. And Rocky, which was before this in 76, I want to say, mm. is much more a movie of the 80s. Right. Because Rocky is feel good. It's triumphant. And Raging Bull is, is the opposite of that. I was hesitant to call this a boxing movie or even a sports movie because we think about things like, like Rocky and it's about training. It's about montages. It's about wanting to be a better fighter. It's about overcoming adversity. And this is, is not that movie. <laughs> it's much more of a character study than anything else. And it's as much about boxing as it is Jake LaMotta's fragile masculinity and, and anger. Mm -hmm. 
Ah, fragile masculinity. That's going to be, that's pretty much what we'll talk about for the rest of this, because I think that's (laughs) kind of what this movie's about more than anything. Mm -hmm. It's funny, there's so many boxing movies on like the AFI list or the top 100 movies of all time. There's more boxing than anything else, (laughs) at least when it comes to American movies. I wonder if that's like uniquely American because... American culture tends to be uh, individualistic. Mm-hmm. It's all about the the single person. And even when they do sports movies, it's something like The Natural, where there's one player who can carry a team. It's right. less about the team. Your things like A League of Their Own are much fewer and far between in, in American cinema. They're more about the individual. Mm-hmm. And boxing, it makes sense why there's so many movies about it. It's takes the... It takes the metaphorical stuff you want to talk about in a film and makes it all very literal because mm-hmm. he's literally battling those enemies, right? And there's a, it's poetic in that way, I guess. Right. Yeah. And I think it's easier to do sports movies that center on one person than it is an entire team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why you always have like superstar sports movies because you have that one person that you can focus on and then everyone else is kind of a background actor. True, but in uh, non-American sports movies, in my experience at least, there seems to be more team films and they seem to be about the team coming together and then overcoming things. Right. But it's, I haven't seen nearly enough to, to be an authority on that, but I like how this... But I'm arguing that this is more of the 70s than the 80s because the boxing here depicts the brutality mm-hmm. and not the glory. Like I keep coming back to that one shot where you see the blood running down his legs. Yeah. And if you've ever talked to someone who's been like injured and they say that there's blood in their shoes, it's like the scariest thing. And you see that and it's so different than uh, than like Rocky. Rocky is brutal in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, but it's triumphant and victorious this is whatever the opposite of that is (laughs) (laughs) terrifying and grueling yeah and i also like that this movie is it's clearly done by someone who doesn't love sports because it's not about like the training and getting better it's not even a character drive of jake to be a better boxer he Mm -hmm. wants to be the champ but he's never like it doesn't focus on his training Right? That's kind of incidental to, to a lot of it. Right. I think Scorsese is, is deconstructing this whole masculine idea by packaging it in the most masculine rapper possible. Yes. Right? Yeah. He's, he's making this fight movie and everyone's going to be like, yeah, yeah, I just want to see De Niro boxing and beating people up. And then you watch it and you're like, wait, he's not the hero. <laughs> and then you're like, so violence isn't good? So I shouldn't beat my wife? <laughs> I think that's like where he's coming from, right? Uh, yeah, I, I like that um, Scorsese is trying to like teach people a subtle lesson. Oh, I don't think it's subtle, though. It was like, um, did you ever see the movie Jarhead? Uh, no, it's, it's like an army movie, right? Yeah. So a lot of people go to it. And they're like, oh, Jake Gyllenhaal got super ripped for this. He's probably shooting a bunch of... damn dirty arabs and i'm gonna love this movie and then you watch the movie and it's about a man waiting for something to happen and just worrying about his partner at home cheating on him uh not being strong enough mentally to deal with the waiting and all that kind of stuff and people hated it because they went expecting like no this is good and then they got this movie showing you the 
reality and how terrible it mm-hmm. is and people were very angry it's a very good movie i highly it sounds really it. good it's it sounds good. like the kind of movie that i'd actually want to see i'm not a big like epic battle army fights kind of movie person but i could totally see that being like a movie more on mental health and finding that more interesting yeah and i think he doesn't fire a gun the whole movie really we actually i I own that we can watch it sometimes it's quite good. good but yeah going back to this movie and the like the masculinity and all that. Remember that bit about him having small hands? Mm-hmm. How he's like, see, I, I could be a heavyweight if it wasn't for these small hands. And that just seems like a very clear stand-in for like how men associate their penis size to their how much yeah. of a man they are, yeah. right? And I don't think it's all that subtle because uh, remember all the stuff with Trump when people say he has small hands and yeah. then he was like accused of photoshopping his hands bigger and all yeah. of that. It's such a stand-in for his own issues of wanting to be a man in the way that he thinks a man acts. Mm-hmm. And he's so upset and he's so ashamed that he has these small hands and he thinks that that's what's holding him back. Yeah. So it's about men fixating on something that they arbitrarily think makes mm-hmm. them a man. Like it, loud cars or... Right, right? It's yeah. all the same. Yeah, giant watches. And fixating on that and saying that's why i'm not getting what i want Mm -hmm. not because i haven't taken the time to learn about the world around me and adapt accordingly it's this one thing if it wasn't for these small hands oh then you'd see right yeah and i don't think this movie gets quite the appreciation for that like tear down of what we now call toxic masculinity so it's like very much a buzzword so i almost don't want to use it but no but that's exactly what what it is is yeah toxic fragile like it's kind of all in the same vein and it's definitely interesting to see um scorsese kind of take that on and it's kind of surprising in that i almost don't expect a male director to take on an issue like that well i think all the people making this from like Schrader to Schoonmaker to De Niro and Scorsese, they're they're smart people. Mm-hmm. They're not making a movie about this because they think Lamada lived a great life. Mm-hmm. They're they come at every shot, every scene, every performance with this in their mind. And I, that's why I wince when people talk about, oh yeah, De Niro, meet the Fockers is really funny. And you're like, <laughs> he was brilliant. Not like, oh, he was very good in early stuff. Yeah. He was brilliant. Scorsese and him, like, they just did such amazing work. (laughs) And when we eventually get to Taxi Driver, it's very much the same thing about this teardown of all of these establishments that men have made. And that's, like, in all of these 70s movies Mm -hmm. as well, right? It's about the distrust or the disillusionment of all of these establishments Mm -hmm. that people have put all their faith in and when you're getting to the 70s you're seeing all these things fall apart and it's very present in in the filmmaking of that time and i would argue has gone away for many years through the 80s through the 90s and is only coming back in the last five years we get these teardowns of the established norms right from the 80s i think you're perpetuating those things right. and i'm not saying it's better or worse it's just not where filmmaking was going at that time right we wanted fantasy we wanted the triumph of the little man while in the 70s we wanted we were looking at tearing down these things that we had believed in realizing what flawed institutions they are and commenting on that mm-hmm. that's why i think this movie is great and in this rewatching. 
I didn't like it as much as I used to. Hmm. I'd only seen it that one time, but I thought like this might be the second best Scorsese movie. I still think it's great. I think it's an maybe an eight out of ten for me. Oh, but I was thinking it was closer to a nine or a ten, and I do think now I like Taxi Driver and Goodfellas more for Scorsese stuff hmm. because we'll eventually get to Goodfellas, but Goodfellas is so much more watchable. Oh, it's fun. It's a fun movie it deals with a lot of these same things but this movie like i think you more than me would agree that it's hard to watch it's hard to watch yeah it's slow at times but it's also difficult to watch because Mm -hmm. your two leads like moriarty probably has third most screen time i think but pesci and de niro everything out of their mouth is either homophobic or racist or misogynist. Yes, and some of that was very hard to listen to. Yeah, and I always say, like, yes, that's in here, but don't dismiss the movie of that because I don't think this movie perpetuates that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a commentary and a teardown on that, but it's in here, Mm -hmm. and it's a lot, and it can be hard to get through. Oh, for sure, yeah. I I definitely think that it really drives home Home, who these characters are and the environment that they've grown up in and why they are the way they are. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't cringe anytime anybody says stuff that is um, very offensive or violently worded or um, kind of inappropriately angry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that like no one enjoys watching someone beat their wife, but it's, it's definitely hard to watch those scenes knowing just how method he was and probably how scared, uh, Vicky would have been. Um, another part is, do you remember when he's training with his brother, Joey, and he like knocks him down and just keeps going at him? Mm-hmm. Uh, he broke one of Pesci's ribs. <gasps> And you just broke his rib. Shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's terrifying. Let's talk a little bit about the visuals of this movie, because I think those are particularly interesting, but it seems like it's two completely different things. Mm-hmm. Like you have the boxing stuff and you have the rest of the world. Yes. And the rest of the world is pretty normally shot. It's black and white. It's not a lot of camera movement. It's mostly static in those. But then when you switch to the boxing ring... Oh, another thing that I used to talk about all the time, it's expressionist. Mm-hmm. This is like all those German expressionist movies that you know Scorsese has watched. He brings all of that knowledge just to the boxing part. <laughs> what did you think of the uh, the look of when he's boxing? Um, it was definitely filmed differently. It was a little bit more kind of artsy in the like shots that you get. Like you will sometimes just be watching his knees or like just the opponent's stomach or like you can just see his face as he's going for the other guy. So it's it was kind of neat to see that because it really brings you into like the franticness of the moment. Mm-hmm. And there's a few little techniques that he employed that I didn't realize on my first watching, which was, I don't know, 20 years ago, <laughs> something like that, 15 years ago. But this time I noticed a little more. One of the things that he did that other people like uh, like Rocky mm-hmm. didn't do is he brings the camera inside the ring. Yeah. Seems really small, but that had never been done. Like <laughs> Rocky is always filmed from outside because you're a spectator watching this amazing right. story. In this one, you're put right in there, and it's uh, it's discomforting in yeah. a lot of ways. 
Also, sometimes when you're seeing Jake's point of view, it goes into slow motion. Mm-hmm. But not hugely, and it's not in that beautiful way where you see like an action scene in slow motion. This is showing when he's focused on something. Mm-hmm. So when he's clear-headed, you would often see the other boxer slow down. And I think that's meant to give you insight to how things look through him. Right. But then also when we see Vicky at the pool the first time, we get that same effect. So it's oh. whenever he like really focuses in on something, it slows down just slightly. Right. I didn't notice that part, but that's pretty cool that they use that to kind of convey those emotions. Did the size of the ring become noticeable to you? No, I don't know what you mean. So the ring gets bigger throughout the movie. Does it? It's like straight up German expressionist stuff where you take the set and you physically make the set different to try to evoke the emotion that that boxer is feeling. Uh So it gets bigger as he becomes like lost. So in the final fight where he's like getting his face smashed in, the ring is huge, impossibly big. Mm -hmm. And in those scenes, the first few rows of the audience even, they like blur out and it's just blackness. You just Mm -hmm. see the flash bulbs going off. And this ring is giant because he's just so so lost in there. And I loved those little things that Scorsese was willing to go straight expressionist from the boxing stuff. It was was so much fun. And I thought those things looked beautiful. On the other hand, I wish that there was more camera movement in the non-boxing stuff. Right. But I guess he really wanted to have those. Really different. Like, it definitely seems very different um, from boxing to, like, even the way the ring sounds. And anytime he's getting ready for boxing, it's always very noisy and very, like, buzzy. Yeah. He brings in sounds that are not, like, real. There's animal noises while he's fighting. And like, why would that be in there? Right? But it but... just kind of contributes to how noisy that environment would be mm-hmm. and how much more focus Jake needs in order to be successful. And then in the home kind of things, you get more like honking horns on the street and um, people walking down the sidewalk. Yelling. yelling. Lots of yelling. So much yelling <laughs> in this movie. The first like 10 minutes is all yelling and yep. it was just like – it was very um, hard to adjust to, but I did. I did eventually adjust to hearing that much yelling. But I, um, I was definitely like, "Woo, these people don't have any volume, but loud." No. <laughs> <laughs> like we have many volumes when we talk to each other, but it's like usually we're at a pretty steady, even kind of podcast volume. You've never yelled out the window at me and called me an animal. No, no, (laughs) no, I have not. Not yet. Not yet. There's still time. We've only been engaged a month. (laughs) Great. I'm glad there's things for us to look forward to. Not all the mystery is gone yet. No. There's still some. There's still some some boxes to check. (laughs) So Jake LaMotta, yes. he starts as an asshole. We know that. That's established. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's any redemption in this story? Because that's usually when you see someone behaving as badly as he behaves throughout this movie. Those are redemption stories or they're the villain of it. Mm-hmm. Do you think this fits in either of those? No, I don't think he redeems himself. I think he learns how to live with himself. And how to kind of self-regulate once Vicky and Joey are gone. But I don't think he ever, like, becomes a better person or does anything that, like, significantly redeems him to the people in his life. 
So at first I felt a little mixed on it because I was confusing sympathy with redemption because there's moments in this movie like later on when he's in the jail cell. Mm -hmm. I feel so bad for this person. I'm sympathetic to this character. Right. But then I realized, like, oh, I'm sympathetic to everyone. If, like, anyone is having a bad day, like, if they're a dick, it's like, no, I, I feel bad for you. Because we're, we're, we're people, right? Yeah. But then when you think about the character and if he's learned anything, I'd, I'd say no. I'd say no. I don't too. think he has bettered himself to the point where I could say there was redeeming qualities to him. Mm -hmm. Yes, I feel sympathy towards him, but I feel like I feel sympathy towards anyone at some point. Yes. Right? So in that last speech he does, that would be a great time for Scorsese to make this character have some sort of redemption mm -hmm. arc. If they wanted to throw in a speech about him coming to terms with things, realizing where he's gone wrong. And even if it's kind of tacked on, we'd be like, okay, he's learned something. But instead, he does this speech where he talks about blaming his brother, but he's not actually speaking for himself. Mm -hmm. That speech is taken from a movie called On the Waterfront. So he's not even saying his own words. Um, On the Waterfront is a Marlon Brando movie from, I don't know when, earlier, <laughs> much quite a bit earlier. Early where times. He plays a boxer who has like run-ins with the mobs and is trying to like avoid the corruption and is lamenting and blaming all the people that kept him from reaching what he thought was his full potential. Okay. So it, like, it mirrors this mm -hmm. pretty close. I see how those two go together. But why do you think he would give him this speech that's already been said in a movie rather than having Lamada speak for himself? I feel like Scorsese and the screenwriter might have decided to use that text because it kind of goes both ways where like if you're watching it from your point of view um you understand like the complexity and the layers that it has whereas if you're watching it from my point of view where you're not familiar with that other movie with the brando movie um it just sounds really good in the moment like it works really well there so i think that you don't lose anything if you don't have the back knowledge that doesn't hurt you in knowing kind of what's going on in the movie so i felt like i really liked that speech but it felt like something either he had written and he was reciting to himself or that someone had said to him in, in his life and he really liked it or maybe it was something from a movie sometime but like it didn't really matter what movie yeah um one brief divergence what i think is amazing about that scene is I think one of the hardest things to do as an actor is act as a bad actor. Mm -hmm. And when you see the way De Niro's Lamada struggles with lines and then remembers them and how he doesn't quite grasp the text mm -hmm. and how he does a bad job of doing it, that is very hard to do. Yeah. So I think I thought that was brilliant. But there's so much meta textuality within this little bit because... Jake LaMotta is doing a Brando speech, but De Niro had played Brando in Godfather 2. He plays the, like, the young version of him. So then we saw De Niro doing Brando, but now we're seeing De Niro doing LaMotta doing Brando. So there's just so many layers, which we won't even get it's, into right it's now. It's like an onion. It's like a full lasagna of 
acting. <laughs> the full lasagna. Yeah, he gives, that's what this performance is. He gives us the full lasagna. De Niro went full lasagna on So this. many layers. So <laughs> many layers. But I think picking that is a way to show that, no, he has not learned. Mm-hmm. He's not giving a speech true to his own life. Mm-hmm. He's taking something else that he feels like, oh, this is a close approximation to my life. Right. So he hasn't learned anything. And even in this, he's not taking responsibility. He's not taking a speech that has someone learning and growing. Mm-hmm. He's taking a speech that's blaming. Right. So right until the end, he he hasn't learned anything and he continues to to blame others. And I think the other speeches we get or other texts that are referenced, mm-hmm. like there's stuff from Richard III in this as well. Richard III, who also would just take and take and take from other people and uh, gives nothing of himself. So mm-hmm. I think there's some parallels there, but I didn't take the time to go back and watch all of those scenes that he was taking from other things to uh, to analyze it well enough. So I think I'd agree with you that there isn't really any any redemption for for jake lamada he's an asshole in the beginning of this movie and it's not a part of some downfall or corruption of this character like we see in other movies it's just who he is Mm -hmm. we don't get the story about oh his father beat him that's why he's like this which lamada did write in his other book he got another movie made as well called the bronx bull so those were like his two nicknames, but he wanted a movie that shows like, well, why am I like this? Right. So he, they made a movie like that, but it had nothing to do with any of these people except mm-hmm. for Lamada. So it uh, has a different feel to it. And it tries to explain like, well, this is why he's like that. And do you think it's a failing of this movie that we don't get? Like, why is he such a bad guy? There isn't really any explanation. He's just, a, he's a dick at the beginning of the movie and he's a dick at the end of the movie. I think it goes, it's like a different kind of ending than we're used to seeing in like Hollywood movies. I think that Scorsese was going to try and show that like people don't always change for the better. Mm-hmm. People don't always change. People just grow in the situations that they're in and not everyone makes it out to a better place. Yeah, and I think as much as it is a character study about Jake LaMotta's character, Mm -hmm. what he's most interested in is kind of ripping the veneer off this idea of like the athletic hero. Sports stars, All of those sports movies, there's triumph at the Mm -hmm. end. And Scorsese is not interested in that. He wants to deconstruct Mm -hmm. this hero image we have in in cinema and he he does it very effectively i'd say i really liked the idea that he was showing us that some people aren't savable some people you end up actually having to walk away from like vicky and joey did some people you just like no matter how hard you try you're not going to be able to help them change because he he hasn't learned his lesson Mm -mm. he's still taking other people's words to blame other people yeah he's so far removed from taking any responsibility that i think there yeah there's no redemption in this even many years later where we have him going and trying to reconcile with his brother yeah he's not apologetic he never says i'm sorry for beating the shit out of you for no reason Mm -hmm. he just goes like oh yeah we'll forget about all that stuff we'll start anew and that's as much as he can do, mm-hmm. but it's not enough. No. And I like that this movie holds him 
accountable. Yes. It's not saying like, oh, these little things you do, people will forgive you. He doesn't do enough. And that's why this movie ends with him like on a very dark note. Yeah. His motivation is is not clear throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a downfall of this. I think it's a downfall of me because I haven't sat and thought about it enough. But he wants to be the best. That's one thing we can say yes. about him. We don't know why. We don't know how. But he just says, like, I want to be the best. And he's so far from it at mm-hmm. the end when he's not even at his own club now. He's at this tiny club in New York that doesn't even have a backstage. So he has to sit there while the other acts go on. He has to do this clearly tired and rehearsed stand-up bit. And he doesn't even feel it. He's just like, oh, fuck you and uh, and the horse you rode in on. I can't even do bad acting as well as, <laughs> as De Niro did. No, he but does like, very good bad acting. He's so just done. Yeah, he's so over it. And it's really kind of interesting to see just how defeated he is because you can imagine that a character who has spent his life being that antagonistic to everyone he knows and loves that he is kind of just tired. He's tired. He's realized there's probably not a lot he can do to repair those relationships. And I think he's a little bit lost because this is the first time where he hasn't had a direction and a purpose. Yeah. And he's just some old guy who used to be kind of famous and um, his wife has left him, his brother has left him, and he's trying to figure out what to do. And at this point in his life, I think he thinks that he doesn't really have a purpose or a path. Mm. There's nothing really to do except for do what he's doing and try and live. Yeah, and I think that's where this movie leaves us because that last speech – which is so clearly paralleling his own life, you get the impression that he might not even realize that. Mm-hmm. He's so, so removed from all of it. Exactly. Yeah. He's himself is a victim of or has fallen into the same beliefs that we do that like, these are the things that make you a man. These are the things that make you successful. And he probably feels like, yeah, I did that. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't gotten to the point to to realize it. And I talked about it a little bit in the pre-episode, but Jake LaMotta's redemption comes when real Jake LaMotta watches this movie. Oh, yeah, you said his wife. And meets Vicky, who he probably hasn't talked to in a very long time. And he says, like, was I really that bad? And she says, like, Jake, you were worse. And that's when he has the realization that's crazy. So I think that that tells you a lot both about Jake's character that's portrayed in the movie and the real life one and the power of, of this film that it was able to cause some sort of reckoning for LaMotta that he never got in his own life without it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that seems like a, maybe a good place to end this one. Sounds good. So yeah, I think we are both uh, fans to some degree, maybe Mm -hmm. me more than you, because of the careers this movie launched, the artistry that it utilizes to to convey something that we don't see nearly enough in film, Mm -hmm. in this uh, like systematic takedown of things that so many of us hold as true and shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So I think that this movie is really brilliant for that, but I get why it's like a hard movie to watch. Yeah. And it's the second time I've seen it in my life, and it'll probably be another 10 years before I watch it again. <laughs> but I'm glad that I have, and I'm really glad that you got to watch it to see like 
that De Niro was someone. He was amazing. Yeah. To uh, start you on this path of Scorsese movies that we will eventually watch. Maybe on, Goodfellas next. We're on the Scorsese train. Goodfellas is much easier to watch. Is it? Yeah, it's it's like funny. Okay. okay. It deals with a lot of similar stuff, but it's hilarious yeah. in many ways. Well, I look forward to our next Scorsese adventure. I think one of the only Scorsese movies that I've seen is Wolf of Wall Street. Did you see Shutter Island? Yes, I saw Shutter That's Island. Him as oh, well. I didn't realize that was him as yeah. well. Um, it's such a long list to scroll through that I I kind of picked and chose what I actually looked at on the list. I I know this. We're not talking about that, but um, Wolf of Wall Street. I feel does what this movie does, but not as well. Mm-hmm. Because I talk to people about Wolf of Wall Street, and I I shouldn't do this because. But I feel like I dislike the movie because of the fans a little mm-hmm. bit. Because people are like, yeah, that guy's amazing. And they're like, no, no, no. This movie is about how he's terrible and a sociopath. But like Raging Bull, people take what they want from a movie. And mm-hmm. when you're tearing down something that people hold in high esteem, it sometimes backfires on right. me. Like I'm sure people watch Raging Bull and go like, yeah, that Lamada, what a tough guy. He never went down. And they take that as like, a success story just as people do with wolf of wall street they're like oh yeah he was a millionaire god he had a beautiful wife or mistress or several or whatever it is and they think of that as a good thing and they don't realize the work scorsese is doing to show you that like no this is bad Mm -hmm. because i think i had to watch it again i saw it the one time but i don't think it was as effective of a takedown of that establishment okay do you remember Wolf of Wall Street? Not super well. I do. I can see like the parallels that you're drawing between it because it was definitely like a a guy who was kind of high on his on his fame and on his job, and then and was a sociopath. Was a sociopath and created this bad marriage, and this woman had to kind of stand up for herself. Like I definitely see the parallels in it. I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, so I don't remember it queer clink super clearly i think i should rewatch that because at the time i felt that it was a glamorization rather than a teardown mm-hmm. and now watching it after being fresh off raging bull maybe i would uh give scorsese some more credit mm-hmm. well that wow. was a long bit of me talking constantly <laughs> so i apologize for that but it's okay. I was... it was like indie's film school we need one of those episodes every so often yeah i, I get i get excited <laughs> you do I like talking about movies, and I like talking to you, and we got to do both of them. Yeah. So uh, next week, you can join us here. We'll each have a spoiler-free review of something small, and then Samantha will tell us what we'll be watching for the week after that. Yes. Any little hints? Um, no. All right, then. <laughs> Keeping her cards close to her chest. I bet it's going to be fun. I bet it's going to be from the 2000s. Yeah. And I hope there's a talking cat, but I think there might not be. No. (sighs) My movies are very low on talking cats. I'm sorry. One day. One day. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Sounded like you said goodbye, everybud. (laughs) Goodbye, everybud. All the buds.